0: Welcome to You Can't Make This Up, a companion podcast for Netflix's original true crime stories. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, your host. Each episode, we take a close-up look at a true crime narrative, documentary, or series, and I talk to the people who made them, diving deep into the backstories and getting answers to questions raised by what we just watched— On today's show, we're taking a break from our usual format to premiere a new Netflix original podcast, Searching for the Sons of Sam. From Tenderfoot TV and true crime director Joshua Zeman comes a five-part audio documentary about Zeman's relationship with the late journalist Maury Terry. Terry spent 40 years of his life trying to prove that convicted Son of Sam serial killer David Berkowitz had not acted alone. Terry's book, The Ultimate Evil, lays out his case that the Son of Sam murders were carried out by multiple members of a satanic cult. After Terry's death, Zeman inherited all of his case files. Searching for the Sons of Sam is the companion podcast to Zeman's Netflix docuseries, The Sons of Sam, A Descent into Darkness. The series retraces Maury Terry's investigation into who really was behind one of America's notorious string of serial killings. Now, it's my pleasure to present to you the world premiere of the podcast, Searching for the Sons of Sam, Episode 1, The Ultimate Evil.
1: For as long as I can remember, I've been fascinated by crime. Whether it's stories of missing children or serial murder, as a documentary filmmaker, I've covered it all. Now, people use the phrase True crime, a lot these days. But for anybody who lives and breathes crime, you know that the truth, the facts, only tell half the story. Because you can know the caliber of the gun, the position of the victim, even how the blood splatters. But those facts are just part of a story that can be told a thousand different ways. So when it comes to understanding crime, it's more than just knowing the truth. It's asking yourself, what do you believe? What do you believe happened? And most importantly, why? That's the question that lies at the heart of the Sons of Sam, my latest documentary series now on Netflix about a journalist named Maury Terry who felt that he knew the truth behind one of the greatest crimes of the century the infamous son of Sam Killings. But the problem is is that no one would believe him. Now, I've spent years trying to figure out if I believe Maury. In fact, I've never compiled so much evidence but still knew so little. So instead of giving you facts and evidence, I'm going to tell you a story about how I met Maury Terry and what he revealed to me. And as you listen, I want you to ask yourself that question that lies at the heart of Maury's tale. What do you believe? I'm Josh Zeman, and this is Searching for the Sons of Sam. Episode 1, The Ultimate Evil.
2: Maury Terry's book, The Ultimate Evil, is considered one of the most comprehensive on the Son of Sam murders. This is Maury Terry. Maury is one of the nation's leading experts on many crimes of violence and murders, particularly the Son of Sam case.
1: Now, before I get into Maury Terry and the so-called truth behind the Son of Sam killings... I need to take you back to the beginning, to what initially led me to this case. And it begins with my first film about an urban legend come true and a boogeyman we call Cropsey.
2: First, learned about Cropsey in summer camp. He was
1: a doctor. He was supposed to have a hook. He wanted kids, and he would find them and chop them up. I'm
0: sure, you get off at the mall. Don't go near Willowbrook Park. Willowbrook Park is dangerous.
1: Growing up in Staten Island, we'd often heard the legend of Cropsey the escaped mental patient who snatched children off the streets and was rumored to live in the tunnels beneath the abandoned Willowbrook State School. For decades, the institution housed thousands of mentally disabled children until journalist Geraldo Rivera exposed the horrifying conditions inside.
2: The doctor invited me to see the conditions he was talking about, so unannounced. We toured building number six. The doctor had warned me that it would be bad. It was horrible. There was one attendant for perhaps 50 children lying on the floor naked. They were making a pitiful sound. This is what it sounded like, but how can I tell you about the way it smelled? It smelled of filth, it smelled of disease, and it smelled of death.
1: Now, for most of my childhood, Cropsey was just a cautionary tale to keep us out of those buildings. That wasn't until 1987 when a little girl named Jennifer Schweiger disappeared from our neighborhood.
2: The relentless search for a 12-year-old girl with Down syndrome continues today as it has for the last three weeks.
1: Eventually, searchers would find Jennifer's body buried at Willowbrook, and the police would arrest a man named Andre Rand, who was once an orderly at the institution and now lived in a campsite on the grounds.
2: Good afternoon, here's what's happening. A homeless man, 43-year-old Andre Rand, is under arrest. He is charged with the kidnapping of 12-year-old Jennifer... But
1: it was when police revealed that Rand had been suspected in the disappearances of four other children. That was the moment when the legend turned real. They are missing
2: person cases that have occurred on Staten Island, that have uh, not been resolved.
1: 20 years later, ran returned to the island to stand trial for one of those missing children. And I came back as well. With me was my co-director Barbara Rancaccio, who also grew up on the island. But as we tried to make sense of this one urban legend, we soon uncovered another.
2: Andre was into the devil's cult. And uh, being a native of Staten Island, I really couldn't believe how big it is on Staten Island.
1: Interviewing residents, we documented rumor after rumor of devil worshippers who supposedly held ceremonies on the Willowbrook grounds. Can you give me like a summation of what she said back then?
2: Chronic had visions of um, human sacrifices. Do you believe it actually goes on? Yeah, definitely. You know, they go to the the woods. We went to uh, one establishment where the basement was set up like a church, and they used to hold their ceremonies on actually the Old Woolbrook State School grounds. So you don't think it was kids? Oh, definitely not. I think it was adults that would hold these ceremonies.
1: We assumed most of these stories were remnants of the satanic panic that in the late 80s was sweeping the nation
0: devil worship, Satanism, the occult. According to evidence, some of the most bizarre and heinous crimes in recent history may have been rooted there.
2: We had reports of chanting down in the back. Speculated there's
1: probably maybe 2,000 such cults in the United States today, and perhaps as many as 2 million people belonging to those various and sundry cults. Now, I still believe most of those sightings were nothing more than teenagers who went to Willowbrook to smoke pot and drink beer. But at some point during our filming, the stories began to change. We started hearing tales of a cult on the island, one that was behind these missing children, a cult that was linked to the son of Sam.
0: At first we were thinking maybe uh, he sold them, you know, to use for uh, cult activities. Really?
1: I mean, what made you believe that that was going well, on? we had. The Son of Sam out there, you know. That goes into cults in, uh, in a big way. Of course, like most New Yorkers, I knew all about The Son of Sam, the madman who attacked couples in Lover's Lane during the sweltering summer of 1977. In a reign of terror, he had shot 13 and murdered six.
0: I'm afraid. I'm afraid to go out in the car. I'm afraid to do anything.
1: For many Staten Islanders who were teenagers back in the 70s, The Son of Sam's shadow loomed large. And considering our film was about both fictionalized boogeymen and real-life monsters, we only dug deeper. We soon found a local reporter who gave us a name, a date, an address that the police had looked into. Then we met an eccentric lawyer who would confirmed the same, until we found what we considered to be a truly credible source, a veteran detective from the NYPD's Cold Case Squad, who agreed to go on camera. Is
2: there satanic cults, people that practice? Of course there is. But it's something that's kept very quiet, something that not many departments investigate.
1: The detective's name was Frank Saez, and he'd spent his career delving into the darkest corners of the city's underbelly.
2: Satanic worshipers satanic worshipers. It's like being a Catholic. You believe in God and you believe in Jesus. They believe in Satan.
0: So are you in houses or are you in the woods?
2: You could be in houses, you could be in the woods.
1: Are you in abandoned mental institutions?
2: You could use them.
1: And do they use kids? I'd rather not answer that. However, when the cameras were off, Detective Sayez did share with us a secret, one that had swirled through the squad rooms of the NYPD for decades. Apparently, there were a number of detectives, both past and present, would come to believe that David Berkowitz, the son of Sam, didn't act alone, and that the allegations of a so-called cult were true. They had to be co-conspirators before or after the fact. It wasn't just a a lone gunman. It's impossible. That's my feeling.
2: Well, why are there three cars, five different descriptions, different height, different shapes, different sizes of the perpetrator? Somebody else was there.
1: And it's a strong opinion of mine that David Berkowitz was not the sole killer, and was aided by other accomplices. Many of the detectives had passed along their evidence to a journalist named Maury Terry. And if I wanted the whole story, Sayez said, I should start by reading Maury's book, The Ultimate Evil. At least one
0: investigator believes that satanic cult activity was behind the son of Sam Killings, and he says most of the people involved are still
1: out there. Now the thing is, I had never heard of the ultimate evil, and I consider myself a huge fan of true crime. In Cold Blood, Fatal Vision, Helter Skelter, I had read them all, but not this one. I assume it's only because the book had been out of print and had since fallen into obscurity, which only added to the mystery of the Son of Sam case. Now, I was only five years old in 1977, But for anyone growing up in New York City at the time, the Son of Sam was the case. San Francisco had Zodiac, Chicago had Gacy, but New York had David Berkowitz. But there was always something unsatisfying about the question of why. Why did Berkowitz do it? Because he had been commanded to kill by a demon dog? And this coming from the same person outsmarted the NYPD, the greatest police department in the world. And so I read The Ultimate Evil, and the thing is, all these allegations that Berkowitz didn't act alone, I didn't actually believe it, at least not all of it. But that didn't matter. What mattered is that the book scared the shit out of me, and that's what led me to Maury Terry. For our own part, we will continue to search for the truth in the Son of Sam murders and we'll continue to report to you new developments in the case. I'm Maury Terry. Now, you might say my first meeting with Maury was a little strange. I had spent months inviting him out for coffee or lunch or even a drink, but he was always too busy with some appointment or he was writing something or his car was in the shop until finally I got fed up and did what any enterprising filmmaker would do. I offered to come to his apartment and bring him tuna fish sandwiches, and together we'd have lunch and talk about his book, which, surprisingly, he agreed to. Which is how I found myself in Yonkers, a small suburb just north of Manhattan, climbing the stairs of this row house to an attic apartment and knocking on the doors, a creaking voice told me to come on in. (coughs) And that's when I first met him in a robe on his couch, hooked up to a little green tank wearing an oxygen mask. And for a moment there, I was in shock because I was expecting Maury Terry, the tall, stout-looking man who I'd seen... In photos, not this frail-looking man who was 69 but looked 85. And that's when it hit me, the push meetings, the not wanting to leave his house. Maury Terry was dying.
2: And he says, hold on to this. This has to do <coughs> with the son of Sam murder, Christy.
1: I'd come to learn that decades of chain smoking had finally taken its toll. And so, every three weeks, I'd visit Maury. And I'd bring him a tuna fish sandwich with potato chips and a pickle. And we would talk. (laughs) It's tenuous, I agree. It's not tenuous. He was told to me right to my
2: face.
1: I understand what you're saying, but.
2: And I can, but, I mean, the whole case is shit. If that's not a story, I don't know what is.
1: Now, if I was a better filmmaker, I would have recorded more of our lunch dates. But I wasn't interested in doing a documentary, no matter how much Maury pestered me. I wanted to adapt his book for a fictionalized TV series, something like True Detective. But deep down, I can also tell that Maury was caught in a web of conspiracy. There was always another layer, and it was never ending. And I didn't want to fall into that same trap. Well, the night of
0: the murder, they were all Spoil with the corner the house, like mm-hmm. that's really well. How do I know that I would
1: report? Now I pride myself on debunking conspiracy theories, exploring how we're hardwired to create logical narratives out of events that just don't make sense. From mass shootings without a logical motive to planes that seemingly disappear out of thin air. Events that aren't part of some grand conspiracy but are just simple and senseless tragedies. And the same could be said for satanic crimes, crimes of ritual abuse and murder.
0: Today, they are dumbfounded over revelations about a devil-worshiping cult of teenagers who reportedly performed ritual sacrifices in a local park.
1: And for years, people would ask me to investigate such real cases. And typically, the truth was just some angry kid high on drugs who dabbled in the devil, or victims of sexual abuse who tragically conflated an imaginary demon for a real one. But there was something about the Son of Sam case and the allegations of a satanic cult that felt different, unlike anything I'd ever seen. And as much as we're trained not to believe in such things as devil worshiping exist, there's no denying our fascination with Satan from The Exorcist to Ozzy Osbourne, the devil's rise in culture is more often than not a sign that something witchy is coming our way. In the Rolling Stones song Sympathy for the Devil, we're told how Lucifer has had a hand in history's greatest atrocities, from the crucifixion of Christ to the assassination of JFK. But in the end, the real evil is just you and me. And Jacker wasn't wrong. While it was early Judaism that invented this notion of an opposing force to God, it was Christianity that created the timeless battle between good and evil. In time, the devil became Satan, and his earthly minions were labeled Satanists.
2: I think Satanism you could look at in two different ways. You can look at it historically his roots in Catholicism. And then there's the pop aspect of it, which is more or less a kind of kitschy celebration of evil. Now
1: that was Gary Lackman. Gary is a writer and an expert in the occult, the paranormal, and generally weird stuff. And I asked Gary where he believes Satanism got its roots.
2: Traditionally, it starts up with priests in the Catholic Church something called the Black Mass which was actually a funeral mass that was performed for the dead and there would be priests in the church that were willing to perform this mass for reasons that would seem rather dubious.
1: Apparently a priest could be paid to conduct a funeral mass for someone who was still alive so it worked kind of like a curse. Later the Black Mass was used for all kinds of magic weather control, fertility, even sex magic. Eventually, the Black Mass became synonymous with this fear of Satanism, a fear that helped fuel the Holy Inquisition and the slaughter of heretics, or the great witch trials that burn witches at the
2: stake for engaging in carnal Sabbaths. Generally, in times of uncertainty, you look for some scapegoat or some source of the uncertainty and the panic. And it could be a religious group, it could be an ethnic group. Talking with Gary, you
1: begin to realize how little we know about the real origins of the devil and Satanism outside popular culture. And this is especially true with the occult,
2: and with good reason. Well, you can actually take the definition of the word, which means hidden. It means to occlude something. When we have a solar eclipse, when the moon passes between the earth and the sun, the moon occludes the sun, so the sun is hidden. And so in a broader sense, it means the study of the invisible things, the hidden things. And something many people might not know is that Isaac Newton, who's generally considered sort of the father of the modern scientific age, he wrote more about alchemy than he did about gravity, and gravity itself is an occult power. No one's ever seen it now, we have a general kind of X-Files, woo-woo sense about the occult. But actually, if you look at it historically, it it has a much uh, more prestigious background. Now, there's something I should have mentioned
1: earlier about Gary, something that makes him especially suited to talk about the occult, or at least all things sex, drugs, and rock and roll. You see, Gary is also Gary Valentine, a singer and songwriter, and an early member of the 70s iconic punk band,
2: Blondie. Well, my my first entry into the occult was in the rock and roll world. I was living on the Bowery in um, early 1975 uh, with uh, Debbie Harry and Chris Stein. I was playing with them in Blondie, and we had a loft space just uh, a block away from CBGB. And Chris and Debbie had a kitschy interest in... The occult there were voodoo dolls and upside down crosses and pentagrams and candles and things of that sort and then in the loft space we lived in there was this flamboyant artist fellow who was very very interested in Alistair Crowley Alistair Crowley was a black magician so books were lying around and Crowley's books and his book Diary of a Drug Fiend which was uh, for obvious reasons was popular but for me what's interesting about that is that these things exist on the margin this is something that later, when I started writing about this, I found fascinating about the 60s, because you had all these different marginalized kind of subcultures turning into this counterculture, and the, the occult was a, a major part of that.
1: Our fascination with the secret world of the occult and the wicked ways of Satanism have continued throughout history, from the Middle Ages to modern day. Mick Jagger, it seems, was onto something when he wrote Sympathy for the Devil. And somehow, he knew that history was about to repeat itself in the most malevolent of ways.
2: Pleased to meet you.
0: Hope you guess my name.
1: In the mid-1960s, the hate in San Francisco had become a Garden of Eden for the counterculture movement. It was the summer of love, a free-for-all of sex, drugs, and philosophy that allowed the occult to finally emerge from the shadows.
0: The Haight-Ashbury district, a 40-block area of San Francisco, began to emerge in January of 1966 as a mecca of the hippies.
1: With the help of LSD, hippie freaks could finally open the doors of perception to a world awash in Eastern mysticism, one that would soon pave the way for paganism and witchcraft. Sexual experimentation mixed with the occult, was also in vogue, setting the stage for a brand new form of Satanism that enticed everyone, from runaway druggies to the Hollywood glitterati.
2: In the 60s, you have not only pop stars, but you have the movie celebs, people like Frank Sinatra wearing a Nehru and love beads and things like that. And Sammy Davis Jr., he's trying to be hip and cool and say, Oh yeah, ritual, I'll go with you. So it was very sexy. You know, it was it was very cool. And it was all about finding yourself and exploring yourself. So it's kind of the dark side of self-realization. But then at certain point, you've come up against certain, you know, lines you're gonna cross. How far how far does my self-realization go to include certain acts and practices that normally I would consider on the dark side? The devil crowd in California, there
0: is a devil crowd. You know, there is, there's a few of them out there.
1: Now, there's no denying that the forces of darkness had aligned in San Francisco, and it was the perfect time for the devil to appear. But in this case, truth is actually stranger than fiction. At least according to a story from the grandson of Satanist Anton LaVey, who alleges that his grandfather told him of a meeting that supposedly happened one stormy night in 1966. In a Victorian mansion in Haight-Ashbury, where LaVey, the former carnival barker turned strip club manager, met the infamous avant-garde filmmaker named Kenneth Anger, as well as a guitarist named Bobby Boussolet, who had just been cast in Anger's latest film called Lucifer Rising. But what makes this story so incredible is the evening's final guest. How
2: are you doing, Charlie? Good. How are you this morning? Good.
1: Yes, according to legend, Charles Miles Manson came by that night. Now, you just might say it was a meeting of the minds, or could it have been something more? But what's fascinating is what the future holds for each one of these guests. Let's start with Anton LaVey.
2: Satan is the essence of that which dwells within myself. Satan is the pioneer, the inventor,
0: Prometheus. Satan has always been the other.
1: It would only take a few years for LeVay and his Church of Satan to become the widely accepted religion of Satanism that we know today. He has
2: always been the counterbalance that creates change because without this so-called evil, there could be no change.
1: Meanwhile, guitarist Bobby Boussole would move to L.A., where he would join the Manson family. Eventually, he would get the death penalty after killing a musician at Manson's command.
2: I think it comports with justice, as I indicated before. I'm always sad to see a death penalty verdict returned. And I, my heart goes out to the parents, Mr. and Mrs. Beausoleil.
1: And then there's filmmaker Kenneth Anger, who a year after Lucifer Rising would retire from filmmaking altogether. And then the evening's most notorious guest. In a scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird religious rite, five persons, including actress Sharon Tate, were found dead.
2: The story of the Manson murders that's the one that's generally accepted is that Manson was a maniacal kind of cult leader who had visions of an apocalypse that would be brought on by a race war. Helter Skelter was Manson's code name for this imminent race war that was going to start.
1: However, Manson wasn't the crime's only occult connection. Roman Polanski had just moved to L.A. with his soon to be wife, Sharon Tate. Tate had played a Wiccan witch in the British film Eye of the Devil, and now wanted the lead in Polanski's next film, Rosemary's Baby.
2: What is-
0: Satan is his father, not Guy. Hail Satan! Hail Satan! Satan is his father! No! It can't be! No!
1: While Paramount cast Mia Farrow instead, Sharon still loitered on set, where it's said she became increasingly obsessed with the occult. And then there's Manson family member Susan Atkins, who four years earlier was a performer in Anton LaVey's strip show before that terrible night on August 8th, 1969, when she scrawled pig in blood on Polanski's front door. Tragically, five people along with Sharon Tate and her unborn child were murdered that night after Manson asked his family to do something witchy. You
0: don't feel guilty at
1: all. There's no need to feel guilty. I haven't done anything I'm ashamed of. Maybe I should have killed four or 500 people. Then I would have felt better Then when I felt like I really offered society something, you know. Uh, Believe me, if I started murdering people, Mm -hmm. there'd be none of you left. Just four months later, on December 6, 1969, the devil would bring the 60s to a close with the Rolling Stones and the concert, known as Altima.
2: Just be cool down the front end, don't push around.
1: From the very start, according to Grace Slick from Jefferson Airplane, the concert had a strange vibe, which wasn't helped by the Hells Angels, who had been asked to run security in exchange for $500 worth of beer.
0: It's, nice. it's kind of weird up here. Hey, man, I'd like to mention that the Hells Angels just uh, smashed Martin Ballard in the face and knocked him out for a bit. I'd like to thank you for
2: that. Hell's Angels are a perfect example of this antinomian sense. It's the Hell's Angels. Everybody tried to get them, you know, on their side. Manson wanted to get them. But even earlier than that, people like Allen Ginsberg, the people involved with the human being in, in, in San Francisco, that was all love and peace and everyone just being together. But the Hell's Angels actually were on hand there for crowd control. They're kind of like private security guards for these kind of transgressive activities. And this was the mistake that Jagger made at the Altamont conference in San Francisco. I think we're a cool we can go. We're always having something very funny happens when we start that number. Uh,
1: <laughs> Finally the Stones launched into Sympathy for the Devil, another skirmish broke out, prompting Mick to plead to the audience. <laughs>
2: If he doesn't stop it, man, listen, either those cats call it, man, or we don't play. Everyone, Hells Angels, everybody. Let's just keep ourselves together.
1: As the stones picked up with under my thumb, a gun was pulled and then a knife. And an 18 year old concert goer, high on meth, was stabbed to death.
0: Okay, man, look, we're splitting. You know, if those cats cut, if you people, I want them out of the way, man.
2: The Hells Angels killed someone, but they terrorized the the Stones as well. They're terrorizing the Stones, they're terrorizing the Jefferson Airplane, and suddenly it's like do-your-own-thing has got out of control.
1: In all, three more people would die at Altamont. It seems finally the devil had his
2: due. And three weeks later, the
1: 60s were over.
2: Something happens at the end of the 60s. There's the the, the big expectation of some smash climax to the whole revolutionary sensibility. That sours with the Manson murders and it sours with the Stones concert at Altamont. And then people sort of shy away from the occult now.
1: While experts like Gary suggest the devil's reign ended in the 60s, there are those who believe a different truth, that Satan had only slipped into the shadows watching and waiting for the forces of darkness to realign. And seven years later, in the summer of 1976, he would emerge from the gutters to find his minions in a city filled with violence and sin.
0: And he wouldn't tell me until 1997. So nobody's going to get a cop. So fuck that. They're the ones who covered it up.
1: Morey believed those minions included a mild-mannered postal worker named David Berkowitz as well as a number of disciples who helped him commit the crimes that brought New York City to its knees. But Maury's allegations didn't end there. In
0: 1981,
2: a private investigator sends me a big folder,
1: mm-hmm.
2: which is in my files
0: in there someplace, and that shooter was just arrested out in Venice, California.
1: I'll never forget sitting there that first time with Maury. Listening to him cough and rant. And thinking how this one case had literally consumed his entire life. But then suddenly realizing, how would I know if the same thing happened to me? How would I know if I fell down that same rabbit hole? Which is somewhat ironic, considering that first meeting with Maury was over 10 years ago. And now I'm only just scratching the surface and my understanding of what this case is really about. This is Searching for the Sons of Sam, and I'm Josh Zeman. Now, this is where the first episode of our podcast ends, and our documentary series, The Sons of Sam, which follows Maury Terry's investigation, begins... You can watch The Sons of Sam on Netflix starting Wednesday, May 5th, and then join us here after each of our four episodes as we go deeper down the rabbit hole. I'm Josh Zeman, and thanks for listening.
0: You've been listening to the new Netflix original podcast, Searching for the Sons of Sam, a companion podcast to the docuseries, The Sons of Sam, A Descent into Darkness, which premieres on Netflix May 5th. We hope you enjoyed the episode. To listen to the rest of the series, find it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And stay tuned for our next episode, where we return to our regular program to talk about the documentary film, why did you kill me? You can't make this up is a production of Netflix. Our music is by Hansdale Sue and our producer is Shayna Deloria. I'm Rebecca Lavoy. Thanks so much for listening.